Hi, everybody. Welcome. My name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And um, this is like probably my favorite chapter in the book. It's the one that I'm like, I want to do it. I want to talk about this. So we decided we're going to be fair this time and split it in half. So I'll do tonight and then Janet will pick it up um, for the second half of it on Thursday. Um, so we're, we're trying to be fair to one another. Um, and uh, so, you know, why I love this chapter so much is because in this chapter, um, my, my purpose, like my, my job now gets clearly defined. And um, for me, it's like all, all my sufferings in this disease finally kind of um, make sense or at least get to be put to good use. So I don't, you know, when that promise is that we won't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it, we get that, you know, in the ninth step promises, but we really get it like reconfirmed for me over and over in this work, because how can I regret the past when the past is what's going to make me most helpful to other people, right? So let's open up the book right away. Um, page 89, the first paragraph says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. And then it says, remember, they're very ill. So, you know, it talks about immunity here. And, and an immunity is the ability of an organism to resist a particular infection or toxin by the action of specific antibodies or sensitized white blood cells. That's what it talks about, right? And so, or it's also protection or exemption from something, especially an obligation or a penalty, some sort of a punishment. So, um, you know, and it, and it also talks about lack of susceptibility, especially to something unwelcomed and harmful. So for me, I like to think about it like this. This gives me immunity, gives me an immunization, like an injection. I get this close proximity with the live disease, the disease in its living form, running amok in other people, and I get close contact with it. And somehow it helps me build my immunity against compulsive overeating. And I have to tell you, it does work when nothing else can. This thing, this work that we do, I've had the experience of it ensuring my immunity. I mean, I'm going to share with you just the other night. Dinner ended and I'm, I'm like emotional about something. My daughter just moved out, like all good. But I'm, my heart, my mom heart is like, oh, I miss her. I feel a little sad. And I was finishing dinner hungry. Weighed and measured meal. I know precisely I was not physically hungry. But I had, a, I guess, a spiritual hunger. I felt hungry inside. And what did I do? Well, first for me is I have to have the humility to say it. I can't keep it a secret. And I'm lucky enough, I just told my family, I said, I'm hungry. And my husband and my son at the same time said, well, don't eat anything. 
which, you know, made me laugh. They know me so well. And I then excused myself from the kitchen table and I went in this room right here and I made some calls and I reached people who needed help. And I have to tell you, it works like a charm. It really does. I did not want to eat after. It wasn't like I was thinking, oh God, I don't want to eat after that. It was really like the hunger was removed. It just works. Um, you know, and it says intensive work. So this idea of work that's intensive, it's not convenient and it's not easy and it's not occasional, right? It's not like occasional work with people, not easy work with people. You know, and the way I look at it is um, this disease was not convenient. It wasn't easy. It didn't just merely fit itself into the little minutes left over in my day. It made all the time it needed, right? So that it owned me, it controlled me. It didn't care that I had an obligation to my kids. It didn't care that I wanted to sit down and relax and read my book, right? It just owned me. And so my solution, this work cannot just fit into this little tiny hole that I'm gonna allow it in. It really becomes the new structure of my life. Um, you know, we can help in ways that nobody else can. So I think about it like this, we have the experience needed for this work. And it's important, you know, it mentions that to remember that they're very ill. So remember that the people that we're helping, these are people who are sick. They're not bad. Their symptoms might disturb us, right? When people aren't well, they tend to be self-absorbed, difficult, needing a lot of attention, needing repetition, needing patience, not always respecting your time limits, right? And we're supposed to kind of remember these are people who are sick, not bad, right? So we're gonna treat them with kindness and compassion because they're not well at this moment, right? Now it says life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. So, you know, our lives begin to have meaning and purpose. That's what happens for us. You know, there's an importance to our very existence. We see people get well, we see them help others. We get to be a part, right? We get to be a part of their transformation. And it's exciting and it's fulfilling. You know, we make friendships, relationships, and they're the gifts that we never knew that were in store for us all along, you know? And I would say a lot of times people start off, well, I have to do this because it's gonna keep me immune. I have to do this work because, it, because I have to, because I'm afraid of going back to the food. And really what happens is through this transformation, we want to do this work. This is the meaning and the purpose of our lives. And I see it happening when I see people I work with recover, they're like right at that point 
they say things like, I can't wait just to help other people. Like I'm, I just had this conversation with someone today. She said, I'm really looking forward to this. And that's when you know that it's, that it's happened, that that change has happened. Because remember, we come in sick, right? We come in sick, not that long ago, kind of full of, our, full of ourselves and our problems. And then we do this work and we have this exciting transformation and we want to help other people. Page 89, don't start out and as an evangelist or reformer. Okay, why can't we be this way? Like, after all, we all know right here, we found the answer, right? So like, why can't we go out there and tell everybody, we found the answer, we found the answer, come on, come on. Well, because it's not helpful, right? When we go out there doing that, evangelists and reformers, they actually turn people off. They don't draw people in. They make people back away. Um, and remember, we just want to be helpful. And we can't help people when they're repelled by us, right? When we come on so strong that we turn them off, how are we supposed to help them then? You know, so it's our behavior and our demeanor that's going to help draw them in. And when our behavior and our demeanor is one of an evangelist or reformer, that does not do the trick, does the opposite. And I like to think about when Ebby showed up to help Bill. He did not rant and he did not preach, right? But his, his whole demeanor, his deportment shouted that he had an answer. He didn't shout, he just showed up. He showed up looking healthy, bright-eyed, you know? And, and I usually, I tell people like, when you're ready to sponsor, show up like someone who other people want to ask for help. You know, if, if you show up like a hot mess all over the place, people are not gonna be drawn to that message, right? But if you show up calm, like smiling, full of the delight of this program, you're more likely to get people who are interested in what your solution was. And that's what it was for Evie. That's what it was with Bill and Evie. Page 89 says, because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate, cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. I love this, uniquely useful, right? Like think about this. We each get the precise qualifications for this job. Like I like to think about it like this. God has lined up the people that I'm supposed to help, the people that you're supposed to help, they're like out there. He knows who they are. They're gonna come into your world. They might be at your job. They might be at your kid's bus stop. You don't know where they're gonna be, but God does, right? And meanwhile, when we were out there suffering, we were getting the exact qualifications to help that person that we haven't even met yet. It's like God knew exactly the experiences that I was going to need to be the most helpful. And what that tells me is that all of my struggles, they were not wasted time, right? But they were, I think, in fact, they were on-the-job training. I was out there getting the on-the-job training I never knew that I, that I was getting. 
you know, and I think about it like this, you know, it was my internship so that I'm best able to do the work that God assigned me. Remember, he's our employer. So he's going to assign me where he wants me to go and who he wants me to help. Um, and then I don't have to regret the past anymore because I have experience that can benefit other people. Page 90 says, if he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste your time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. Be patient, realizing that you're dealing with a sick person, right? So we're supposed to be patient with people. And again, we're reminded that the person is sick and not bad. How do we know if someone doesn't want to stop? You know, sometimes we hear, well, she ate again. She doesn't really want this, right? She just keeps picking up. She doesn't really want this. Um, in my experience, it's people who don't want to stop are people who try to negotiate. People who will try to tell you what they want to do and what they're not willing to do. They'll give excuses. They might give reasons. They won't call on time. Like you'll make an appointment for them and they won't call you at that time. Or they may actually tell you outright that they don't want to or they don't feel ready yet, right? Don't push people or chase them down. When you call someone and they say things like, yeah, I know I'm back in the food and I don't really want I just don't want to come to meetings right now. I don't really want to do it. You know, we don't chase them down. We can be kind. We can say, well, you know, I'm here whenever you decide to, but we're not to like shake them by the shoulders and say, what are you doing? You're wasting it, right? We kind of just let them be. Um, because really what happens is our disease sells the solution more than we do. And otherwise, what we're doing is more fraught the emotional appeal. And we know that that seldom suffices. Page 91 tells us how we're gonna see these people. We're gonna see them alone if possible. At first, we're gonna engage in general conversation. So asking general conversations, your job, your family, where you live, right? And after a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. Tell them enough about your own drinking habits or symptoms and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he's not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up until the time you quit. Don't start talking about your food plan. Don't start talking about all the things you did to get well. You just talk about your experiences with the disease and you stop before you get to the point where you quit, right? Saying nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. Don't tell them how you stopped. If he's in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor caused you. Being careful not to moralize or lecture, if his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your escapades. Get him to tell some of his own. You know, basically, I love this. Bill was an amazing salesman. He was a really good salesperson. And he used that to help sell the ideas to the alcoholic. 
And we're getting schooled right now, I think, all in the art of selling. You know, when I talk to someone, I talk about my eating and my diet habits and my experiences. I talk about the painful weight fluctuations that I had, that like I, it was unpredictable what size I was going to be from like one week to the next, things would fit me and then they wouldn't fit me. Like I couldn't predict it. The binges that made me physically sick, right? I talk about that, how I missed important social obligations all the time. I was like the queen of the last minute cancel, right? I missed obligations, celebrations. I usually share how I missed a friend's funeral because I was embarrassed about my weight gain. And basically, if the person is in a sad and depressed mood, I take out the most painful stories I have. And those are the ones that I use in this approach. So I try to take their temperature. I try to gauge how are they feeling? Are they really like down and defeated? I don't share them up. I tell them the most depressing stories I have, like the worst ones that I've got. But if a person's kind of laughing, some people laugh as a defense mechanism. And if they're laughing through the encounter, but, they're, but I know that they're in pain and they're hungry for more, then I tell my stories with a humorous angle. You know, I talk about the cabbage soup diet story, how I went on this cabbage soup diet like repeatedly and all it ever got me was diarrhea and gas, right? I tell that story and they usually chuckle and that kind of a thing. So we try to get how they're feeling. Page 92, tell them how baffled you were. Tell them how confused I was, how I finally learned that you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. Showing the mental twist, which leads to the first drink of a spray. We suggest you do this as we have done it in the chapter more about al on alcoholism. If he's an alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. And to me, this really il illustrates just how valuable the sufferings of my experiences are, right? Again, we sell the solution. The way we sell the solution is we allow the person to see the need for the solution, right? We sell it by, by the necessity, right? They say like the best way to sell a car to somebody is not to show them how great your car is, but to show them how difficult it is to walk from place to place. And that's really what it is with this. We show the necessity that I could not do it on my own, right? And that they mentioned the chapter more about alcoholism, which completely drives home the point that if one is a true compulsive overeater, then there is no chance of doing the job alone. In fact, that chapter ends with that reminder. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. So I just keep talking to them about all my mental defenses, all my human strategies, all the ways that I used human power to try to manage and fight this disease. 
And usually if they're one of us, if they're, if they've got what I got, they're like, I've done that too. I've done that too. I've done that too. Right. Page 92, the first full paragraph says, if you're satisfied that he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. So think about this. We dwell on the hopeless feature. We don't tell them it's going to get better. Don't cheer them up. And it feels like so painful and opposite at first because you want to like say, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. But that's actually the wrong way to carry this message. We just keep talking about the hopeless feature, the hopeless feature. Now, we show him from our own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. So here I explain that my willpower doesn't function normally. And I try not to discuss it in a lecturing way, but I give my experience. So I tell them, you know, my willpower stories, which is I spent a lot of money on commercial diets and gym memberships all the time. I spent a fortune on it. And I would spend all this money on prepackaged foods, or I would get a prescription. I had a prescription for FenFen. Right? I would go to a doctor, I would spend a lot of money on a doctor who never examined me, but just gave me a prescription and all these other medical solutions that I tried. And then I would lose some weight and then decide just like that, that I should be able to eat blank today, right? And I would eat it. For me, it was, it was always pizza. It was a Friday night pizza. It was, I would look around and say, my family is eating it. And some people can have it, so nothing against that. But in my experience, that was like, for me, that's like alcoholic. But I would look at my family and say, it's Friday night. Come on, it's Friday night. Um, I, I should be able to have a slice of pizza. But I would eat three or four slices. And then I was really off to a binge. And I did it repeatedly over and over and over and over again. And every time I started a Friday like that, I ate the entire weekend and would hopefully, if I were lucky, emerge remorseful come Monday. But come Friday, I would forget it all over again because my willpower doesn't function, right? And what's important here is that we stress the you and not the them. So when I tell this story, I don't say, I don't say the you to them. I'm talking about me. I tell my experience, my experience. We don't tell them that they're a compulsive eater. We let them come to their own conclusion. We let them draw their own conclusion. Page 93 explains what comes next. We really wanna get them to do this. We are like setting this hook in the water and we want them to take the worm. And how they take the worm is when they ask this question, well, what did you do to get well? Right? Because you're talking about all your painful experiences, how your willpower doesn't work, right? all the things that you've tried, and yet you're sitting in front of them not looking like you're in the food anymore, not sounding a hot mess anymore, but calm right, and clear. And so they say, okay, then what did you do to get well? 
And this is the question that gives us the freedom to talk about the spiritual future. Now we can really start talking about the solution with them. But it says here, we don't get in a religious discussion. And here are some important points. He does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he lived by spiritual principles. So he has to agree that he's willing to consider that there's something bigger than him, bigger than me, bigger than human, bigger than diets, bigger than weight loss schemes that can help him. And he has to start living a better life. That's the spiritual principles. You have to start living better right from the get-go. Stop doing the things that you know are wrong. No stealing, right? No lying, no cheating, no abusive acts or words. We have to stop like being abusive in our language to people. We have to start looking right away for ways to help others right from the get-go. Remember, Bill did that in the hospital. So right in the beginning, we're supposed to be looking for ways to be helpful. And one thing that often needs accentuating is focus on your own behaviors and not the rest of the world. That's usually, when we, when we talk to somebody about spiritual principles, usually people come in and they're not just upset about their weight and their eating, but they're mad about something that their husband's been doing. And they're mad about something that their kids have been doing or their boss has been doing. And the reminder here is, we're gonna focus on you living on your spiritual principles. And let's put those other people to the side for the moment and focus on you. Page 94, we're dealing only with general principles common to most denominations. Again, not specific religions. So it's not required that anybody be the same religion as me. In fact, it's really not my place to be advising anybody in religious instruction. The only thing that I can instruct anybody on in this particular program is this particular program, right? I'm not a life coach and I'm not a religious counselor, right? I can share what I do. I can share my experience. So we're told, outline the program of action, explaining how you made a self-appraisal, how you straightened out your past, and why you are now endeavoring to be helpful to him. It's important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you're helping him. Make it plain he's under no obligation to you and that you hope only that he will try to help other alcoholics, compulsive overeaters, when he escapes his own difficulties. Suggest how important it is that he placed the welfare of other people ahead of his own. Make it clear that he's not under pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off, for he has helped you more than you have helped him. 
if your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you may have perhaps made a friend. There's so much in this paragraph. Basically, you tell the person about the steps, but you really stress the importance of passing it on. In fact, when we start working with the person in the very beginning of the doctor's opinion, it clearly mentions this. In fact, it's on the first page of the doctor's opinion. In the third paragraph on the first page, it says, as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must likewise do the same, do with still others. And you know how they said that, I said in the, before that Bill was an amazing salesperson and how we learn how to sell the solution, right? We, we learn it. If we do it the right way, we learn how to sell this. Well, we're not there to trick anyone into the terms. There are terms in this agreement. And right off the bat, the person is told the terms right up front that in order to get well and to remain well, you're gonna have to help other suffering compulsive overeaters. No tricks there. These are the terms. And I, for one, always lay it out when I'm working with another person right away. Once we decide that they're going to do this thing with me, that I'm gonna work with them, I make the agreement is that if you get well, you will, must pass this on to someone else. And you know, I also tell people that if they're interested in working with me, that they're gonna allow me to share their numbers as a source of contact with someone who may benefit, like right away. So if someone's calling me and they're asking me for help, my understanding is that is not anonymity. If, if you're asking me to help you, then the terms of this is that you should be willing to have others call you as well, right? Now, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna spill the details of our conversation and break confidentiality, but um, we can't do this without passing it on. And we're told that very clearly. You know, we also are warned to give people a chance to think it over before just agreeing to continue to work with me, right? And I make it really clear that if they don't wanna work with me, I'm not going to be upset. And if I see them at a meeting or I pass them on the street or they call me sometime for an outreach call, I will greet them warmly and I will offer them fellowship. The line here, I just love this. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you may have perhaps made a friend. So we're calm. We're nice. You know, um, we're not yelling and we're not arguing and we're not bullying. In fact, if a person is all revved up and worked up, then they're not really following the directions. And what I really want to stress is that line, you have perhaps made a friend. This chapter, by the way, mentions the word friend 16 times. In this chapter, 16 times, that's not a mistake. You know, it's not an accident. When people say, I'm not your friend, I'm your sponsor, I think perhaps 
their definition of friend might be in need of retuning. I think they think, like I used to think, that a friend had to be someone who agreed with me no matter what, at all times, just agree with me. Because that was my old definition of friend. My old definition of friend meant you are my ally, no matter what. It was me against you. And that's not what this is, right? That's, that, there is no fight. So there is no me against and you against anybody. There is no against, right? Um, you know, I think also for myself, when I'm afraid of, of getting friendly, of being nice, I'm operating from fear. I'm afraid that I won't be respected. I'm afraid that if I'm too nice, they're not going to listen to me, you know, that they're going to walk all over me, that I have to keep myself safe. And, you know, the beautiful thing is I'm not in charge of keeping me safe anymore. I've got an employer. That's his job. My job is to be his agent. And if I do that, I don't have to worry about my safety as far as helping other people. You know, I also found that I don't have to come from a place of fear in order to be respected. And I'm not really here for respect. I'm here to be useful, right? If I get respect in, as part of it, okay, that's okay, but that's not my job. My job is not to earn anybody's respect. Um, you know, people will listen if they're hopeless and that you demonstrate through your demeanor that there's hope, not they're gonna listen because they're afraid of you. Right. Page 95, the second paragraph. If he's not interested in your solution, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. Okay. How can you tell if someone's not interested in your solution? You know, I, I would say it's because they won't do any of the work, because they're not listening to what you offer. You know, not because they struggle with the food. I've heard sometimes, well, he picked up, so I dropped him. She picked up, so I dropped. Now, sometimes, I'm not saying that you never, ever, ever need to let someone go, right? But that's not always an indication that someone isn't interested. <clears throat> Remember, we're powerless. Sometimes it's a, it's a demonstration of someone's true powerlessness that they're struggling with the food. So I can tell maybe that someone's not interested in my solution because they won't do any of the work, not because they struggle. People that negotiate are not interested in the solution. They're interested in their own solution, right? Not the one that I'm offering for them. So if he thinks he can do the job in some other way, you encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us. And in any case, be friendly. Let it go at that. So if somebody isn't interested in working the way that I precisely do it, that's okay, right? I can still be friendly with them, but I'm not going to change the way that I do it so that they stay with me, right? That would make no sense. That would make, that would mean that I'm thinking that I've got some sort of power to do something for them. And I don't, right? So don't waste your energy trying to convince someone to work with you. I'd say, don't water down the truth, right? Don't try to make it easier to keep them. Instead, 
page top, the top of 96 says, search out another alcoholic and try again. You're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. It's a waste of time to keep chasing a man. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced he cannot recover by himself. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might've deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. So don't be discouraged, right? Find someone else, find someone desperate. Desperation is essential. If someone is not desperate, right? Desperate, meaning out of ideas, no more tricks, no more schemes. And we can't create desperation for another person. And I have to say, I can't even actually assess someone else's desperation just by looking at them. I used to think I could. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's desperate. She's desperate. But I'm not really great at assessing people's desperation. I can look at someone and think, of course, they're desperate. And yet they're not. Right. And the other thing that I get out of this paragraph is I don't work on someone. It says if he continued to work on him, right? I don't work on someone. I'm not a surgeon, right? And I'm not God. God works on us. But what we do in this work is we work with them. We don't work for them. We don't work on them. We don't work against them right? If someone's fighting it, I'm not going to work against them, but we work with them. And it helps me to remember that it is not my job to get anybody recovered. So don't feel like a failure if you start working with people and they don't get recovered, right? My job is to carry the message. That's my job. My job is to do the best. And we really have no idea where we're meeting people on their spiritual journeys. We don't know. We don't know what job we're actually given. God does. God is in charge. God is assigning the roles. And, you know, maybe my job is to like say this one thing that they won't even remember until 10 years from now or, or not, right? I just don't know. So it's not my, my burden. You don't have to feel this heavy burden about this. All you have to do is do your best, right? God's got a plan, right? Just like all things, it's the same with working with others. And I'm going to stop at this point and Janet will pick it up from this point on, on Thursday. Thanks. Yes.